hard to believe, but it is already October and we are rapidly coming up on election day. Or maybe I should say election month? Election two months? I think that might be more accurate this year. I'm sure I'm not alone in wondering how on earth did we get here? Like with everything, from the big stuff, like how did society get to feel so divided, all the way to the little stuff. Like, how is it that I have now worked out of my closet for five months? Well, today we're going to be answering what's probably the more interesting side of those two questions. We'll be listening to stories of where it all began. How were people introduced to civic life and how has that shaped what they think about democracy and the role of government today? My name is Tessa and this is Alt-G, a podcast where we're taking a look at democracy through an intergenerational lens. Over the past few months, I've been talking with people from across the United States to better understand how generations are sharing civic life. Alt-G is a place where we reach out in both directions, younger and older, to hopefully figure out how to do this thing just a little bit better. Our stories today come from nearly all generations sharing the current democracy. From the cusp of Gen Z and Millennial through the silent generation, we'll be asking people to share their earliest memories of learning about civic life. Our first story comes from Hugh Scott, a baby boomer, grandfather, and lecturer of management at the University of North Georgia. Um, well, I'm Hugh Scott. I am a baby boomer. I think pretty much right in the middle of baby boomer uh, demographic. So that's fine in my early 60s. I don't miss elections. So I voted all the time since age 18. Well, welcome, Hugh. I'm excited to hear a little bit more about your story. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your first experiences with democratic life? I, I'm one of three brothers. My brothers and I with my parents got involved in different election campaigning and things like that. Um, so we, you know, what actually I can remember a storefront that had been rented as a campaign headquarters for, you know, this and that and another candidate. And we'd go down there and cut out posters and, you know, make things that go on signs and go door to door, that sort of stuff. So, you know, again, kind of, wondering what people's positions were on stuff. And when we did that, then occasionally the candidate, whoever that was, that was usually, I think, at a state level. And they would come to town and you actually would have a chance to ask them. Oh, I've been meaning to ask that guy. Maybe now I'll ask him, right? And back yeah. then it was interesting questions, right? So how long are we going to be in Vietnam? Right? <laughs> you know, see what the guy says. At a state level, right? Misplaced question, but still. I was going to say, I don't know if the state level would know that it's exactly right. But, uh, how old were you when you started working in, in sort of campaigning? Oh, I'll say 11, 12. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Not old enough to vote yet. Yeah. Preteen. Sure. Right. You become teen, you have better stuff to do, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I'd written down to tell you was that my father then got involved in local politics. Um, okay. Although the local government was nonpartisan, um, but they ran, and he ran for city council. We were um, involved in, in our little, we called it a city, but it was like 16,000 people, right? But okay. So we were one of the smaller of the actual cities in Virginia. And he ran for city council and was elected and then our teen years, you know, he was on city council basically and became mayor for a couple of years, which was a wow. kind of like chair of the council kind of thing. So we were familiar with that. I can remember the 
little downtown and the city hall and he would have council meetings on Monday night, but we had boy scout meetings on Monday night, like just down the hill from city hall. And many times our, you know, my brothers and I would go up to the city council chambers after boy scout meeting and sit in the back waiting on a ride home, basically, including a couple of times. I'm sure this is illegal now, but a couple of times council was going to go too long. So dad would have a police officer take us home. <laughs> from wow. yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's illegal. I think it might be uh, considered a misuse of power. But well, that, that I consider that. I would think that's illegal, right? So yeah. Not supposed yeah. to arrive. I, I just, you know, it depends on the city. Depends mm -hmm. on, I never know. But that's sure go out on the Out on the sidewalk and he could have the police take us home, you know, under <laughs> for yeah. noisy teenagers or something. Well, uh, what was the name of your city? Waynesboro. It was Waynesboro, Waynesboro. Virginia. And it's in the Shenandoah Valley. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Gorgeous part of the world. So I remember that impression kind of as a little kid and then, you know, morphing from there into a lot of family discussions were about politics, for better or for worse. Both of my parents had very active opinions, I'll say. And and they just, uh, you know, weighed on in and, and discussed politics and didn't always agree. I think actually from a partisan point of view, both my mother's family and my father's family uh, had people on, you know, at that point, both sides of the fence. So some of them were not loud, but spirited discussions sure. about politics. Spirited. That's spirited. A good, right. That's a good word for it. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you think that shaped your understanding of politics growing up, having that be a constant that was talked about? Um, I think it made me curious about with people I respected having different opinions, I started to get curious about who was right or was there right, you know, and, and how you actually would find that out. Yeah, I think that may be a question that many of us are still searching for the answers for. It sounds like you had a really strong exposure to the mechanisms of democratic life early on, the actual mechanisms of getting elected and serving uh, in, in a city. I wonder if you think about those experiences, how has that shaped your understanding of civic life today and maybe even looking forward? Uh, how, what would you share with a future generation about that experience? Well, I don't know that I either can distill that much or come up with something that important, but, but the thing that I guess comes to mind quickly is that an individual can make a difference, mm -hmm. that an individual doesn't just fade into the fabric and is in can't that, um, I think it was Ralph Nader used to say that everything that's ever been accomplished of importance started with an individual trying to accomplish it. Um, so if, you know, leave them with that thought, they just might be the person. So don't slow down. I mean, go ahead, tear a hole in it, right? Point them at the wall and have them just plow a hole in it. For many of us, our generational belonging shapes how we view civic life. Not because generations have vastly different values or think terribly differently, but because of the major events that happen to us and how we make meaning from those events. Our next story comes from Pamela Davis Merwin, 
a retiree living off the coast of Oregon, a member of the Silent Generation, and a member of the League of Women Voters, an organization that was instrumental in gaining the right to vote for women and has been active now for over a hundred years. Pam's early democratic experiences were some that many of us have only read about in history books. My name is Pamela Davis Merwin, and uh, I'm 89. So uh, that was a long time ago. It's, I haven't thought about changing <laughs> my life in a, a long time. I was um, 18 when I, when I first voted, I think. I was in New Jersey, and my mother and father made it very, very important, you know, that I, when I had my birthday, but then I was able to vote, and that was a really big deal. And I think I got my driver's license too the same year, which so I felt like very grown up when I could vote and I had a driver's license. So yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah, that's really phenomenal. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what are some of your earlier memories of getting involved civically earlier than voting? What was that like? Uh, we went through the, the Second World War. We were about, I was about fourth grade, I think, and we, we, we all hustled and we became very patriotic by collecting tin cans and uh, for the they would melt the cans down and use them for war projects. And, uh, and we, we had war stamps and war bonds and we buy war stamps in, in class uh, once a week we, we do something with that. And um, yeah, every, everybody was involved with that war. And when it was over, it was a big celebration. And um, the boys came home and I had all of my cousin boys were sent to, uh, were drafted. They never even got to go to their high school prom. <laughs> you know, the day they finished, they were off. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it, it's just occurring to me now that um, when we had schools canceled last, the, this past school year from the pandemic and how many students were so devastated from missing their their senior proms that this isn't the first time this has happened. There, there have been other times in history where literally, you know, high school seniors haven't been allowed to attend their proms because of something going on internationally, right? Um, that's really fascinating. Uh, I hear, you know, from your story, how, how much community was in that civic life that early on for you. Um, what what have you carried forward? What does your community look like today? Oh yeah, well I, in my community right now, I um, I live in a small town, and um, everybody can easily find something to do. There's a lot of need people that are hungry, and uh, so I help with this afternoon. We have um, we help with a stone soup service at one of the churches and um, bringing food. I'm not, I'm not involved in the cooking like I always was because I, my children <laughs> don't think I should at my age be involved in the thing. So I just bring food and drop it off. 
thinking about your early experiences and your experiences even now with your church and your community, um, what do you think is the responsibility of a citizen? Uh, to vote, to work for, for reconciliation and peace and um, work together somehow right, to make it work. Yeah. <laughs> I don't a simple answer. I wish I did, but um, I think most of the people in the United States want that. I hope so. Our next story comes from Jason Capilli, a recent graduate of Santa Clara University, a software engineer at a startup called Gainful, and someone who stands at that unique crossroads between millennial and Gen Z. When we spoke, he reminded me that when you fall close to the arbitrary lines for which generation you belong to, you tend to identify with different aspects of each without fully connecting to either one. Even more importantly though, he shared with me that sometimes your generational perspective isn't the main driver of what shapes your democratic life. Hi, um, my name is Jason Capilli. I'm located in Los Angeles, California. Um, I work as a software developer at a startup and we sell protein powder, so we're in the health and wellness sector. And I would describe myself as a new activist in that I just got into politics after graduating college. I started out by volunteering for a local community in San Francisco called Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, but other than that, I've just been trying to educate myself on the political landscape and see how I could get more involved as a citizen. Uh, so I would love to start, Jason, um, at the beginning. Wow. <laughs> and yes, what a, what a phenomenal place to start. Try to think back to your first memory of civic engagement democratic engagement, what, what comes up for you? I think the earliest memory of like being aware of politics or civic engagement at all was just through my parents because my dad would watch the news. I particularly remember big events like 9-11 um, and then when Barack was elected and um, when he went after Osama bin Laden and made the announcement to the American people, that was something that was just on the TV. And I, that was the first moment where I would like realized that that wasn't like a separate entity from my life. That was like stuff that was directly affecting me and coming into my life in a profound way. Really during and after college, I started acting like I was actually a participant in democracy and trying to get the word out to people about different issues that I cared about um, and just really trying to see what I could do, like what was within my power, because there's always this talk about like political systems and big corporations who are controlling everything. And so, but then there's also the narrative that this is a democracy and we as the people have a right to um, have a say in how things are run in this country. And so it was really after college was the exploration and how I could have that say and really exercise my rights. Yeah. Have you uh, found any answers to the, the question of, you know, what is within my power? I think there is a lot of power within collective action and it's, it's tough for individuals to feel like they are having any individual effect, but when every individual up and down your street and all in your community is like doing the same small things that you're doing every day that ultimately culminates in collective action and that's really where 
the change lies within the public. And so that's how we can like uh, have a say against big corporations and um, very entrenched political systems and just really spreading awareness and participating in the community and just being a part of that community. Sure. What do you think inspires that belief? Where does that come from? I think a lot of my inspiration comes from, I, I think engineering is a good, um, it's a good metaphor because I, I, people feel like when they're making, like when I would make something, I really don't know what I'm doing. I don't know anything that's happening, but like slow learning and then sharing experiences is really what got me to um, become interested in engineering in the first place and then subsequently politics, which is funny. Yeah. I've always been into like tinkering and building. And so it, what really inspired me was when I could share that with other people and like empower them to make this cool thing that I made or just like try this experiment that I um, tried and just like give them the power to do that. That something that didn't really seem attainable for me but I did it myself. And so I was like, let's share this with, with other people. Um, and so I think that part of um, my experience and my personality kind of bled into the political system because in the same way, like I can do all these small actions like phone banking and text banking. Um, and before I started any of this, those were all intimidating actions and I didn't really see any use to them, but I, it's really been um, interesting for me to like, tr to share that experience with other people and try to inspire them and say like, hey, this is, this is something I'm doing that I feel has a difference and you can easily do this too. One theme in each of our stories so far is that family seems to always be a part of how we learn about civic life. And often it's not what our parents tell us, but it has more to do with what we see them do, what actions they take. The same is true for Kirsten Dougal, the Senior Business Development and Operations Manager for the Stanford University School of Medicine, a Gen Xer and one of the most thoughtful and well-researched voters I've spoken with throughout this project. I'm Kirsten Dougal, and I live in California. I work in the healthcare research sector. Um, I'm very passionate about voting, and I guess I consider myself a citizen, and I try very hard to be a good citizen. I try very hard to be an informed citizen, so that when I cast my vote for issues, I feel like I really understand them well, um, I've researched them and I know for what I am voting. And if I don't know, I don't weigh in because I don't think that's responsible. So I try to be a responsible and informed citizen and a responsible and informed voter. My earliest uh, experience with civic engagement would have been in town hall. So I grew up in Northern Vermont. It was a very small town. Um, and like there was a school and a church and a town hall and like that was it. And then lots of farms. And um, so there was town hall. I, I don't even remember what interval we had town hall, but you know, everyone could come and there was an agenda. There were probably select people for the town. They would have been called selectmen at the time. And, you know, we, we would just go to town hall and talk about, you know whatever needed to be talked about for the town like did we need a new plow did we need more gravel was were people having problems you know whatever 
So that was my, and I used to go, my parents would go and I would occasionally join them. And that was my, kind of my first memory. Um, and we, we went with some frequency, I think just to possibly because it was, it was a quasi social event. Um, and you got to see people who didn't necessarily you normally see on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, they'd come out to speak at town hall. So that was pretty direct democracy. I mean, that was like direct <laughs> democracy in action, or sort of. I mean, there were select people, but um, you know, the town's people had a voice. Well, as soon as you said like having it be a social engagement, I was just imagining there would be like you know a plate of cookies in the back. <laughs> there would oh. be a reception, and and so I'm curious if there was anything there that was like, I don't know, acknowledging that this was also a social activity for people and like furthering that forward or if it was very like regimented you know that people show up they sit down they make their their comments and then they leave yeah that is an interesting I, you know i have to ask my mom um i don't remember if there was anything like that i remember it being pretty austere you know that you would like go in and there were folding chairs and you know people generally stayed throughout the meeting um, I don't remember a lot of like, you know, I'm here to say my piece and then walking out, but, and I don't remember cookie because I, I, I should remember cookies, right? If there were Especially anything, you would have, you would have remembered yeah, I, that. <laughs> I probably would have remembered cookies, but I don't, I just remember, um, I just remember, you know, there being people who express themselves, um, enthusiastically, you know, and, but the, the whole thing seemed rather us, it seemed serious. You know, it didn't seem like, when I said it was social, I guess what I meant is it wasn't like fun social, but you know, I lived in the small town and there were a lot of people who lived, it was very rural. So a lot of people kind of didn't come off their hill or didn't, you know, didn't come off their farm that much. So you wouldn't really see them. And so I guess it was social in the sense that you would get to see people you wouldn't normally interact with. Um, but it wasn't social, like, it wasn't like a social gather. It wasn't like a fun thing, but you could, con you know, if you wanted to, you could converse with these people, but it, it didn't have like a festive atmosphere. It had a serious atmosphere. Yeah, that's, do you, do you know about what size, like how many people lived in the town? Probably around like 500. Okay, that, that's very in line with my, my husband's experience too. He lived in a town of 400. And so that was, uh, I think it's difficult to have regular attendance when you start to get into the, like hundreds of thousands of people, but when there's just yeah. a few hundred, that makes a lot of sense for people to, to show up regularly to discuss those, you know, snowplows. <laughs> snowplows, right. Very important things. And then since, I mean, you may ask about this, but since, so, I, you know, I kind of moved from there to you know, a, a, a decent sized town for college. And then pretty much since I've lived in cities, like big cities, right? And so Los Angeles and San Francisco. And so, um, but now I also uh, have a place where I stay regularly in Sonoma County. And we went to town, like we, there was a town hall. And so we went to the town hall, you know, we went to the church, it was at the church, the Methodist church. And we went to the town hall and it was like, <laughs> it's a total flashback. It was like, oh, here are, you know, 150 people and there's folding chairs and there's our, you know, county supervisor and she's talking about the roads and the bumps in the road. And 
know, it's like, wow, here I am back at town hall, like literally yeah. like full circle back at town hall. Yeah. Speaking of full circle, when you think back to some of those early memories, what, what do you think drives your commitment to voting and being an informed voter today? What has sort of shaped how you view that today? And, and how do you see that going forward? When you were forming the question, what the image that popped into my mind was my parents who were um, young adults in the Vietnam era and were so upset by the war. I mean, my, my father was in the Navy during Vietnam, um, but they were you know, kind of hippies and they were so upset by the war. And while they participated in the military, they were, they were opposed, they were opposed to the war at, at just with every fiber of their beings. And I think maybe that's what they handed down to me was that the sense, the sense of like, you have to be able to have some way of registering an opinion when you don't agree with, you know, things like war, sending people into harm for, you know, political reasons. Or, um, so I think that's how I received my enthusiasm and passion for this. That makes so much sense when I think about how, how strong a value being informed is as a voter when you say that, you know, this is your way of registering your opinion officially, whether you agree or disagree with what's going on at the broader scale. The idea of having an informed citizenry, I think is really difficult for some people that, you know, how can we have everybody vote when we don't trust that everyone is really well informed? So I'm curious, how do you wrestle with that tension of, are you informed? Like, you want everyone to vote, but you want them to vote based on good information or like well thought through information. Yeah, I remember, yes. And I remember hearing this thing, God, I think it must've been in one of the Bush junior elections. And I remember hearing this research that said, most people, this must've been in, I don't know, somewhere in America, um, most, and I don't, you know, again, I don't know what the study was, but most people in America decide who to vote for, candidates, not issues, who to vote for 48 hours before the election. Most of them decide 24 hours before, and that one of the biggest factors that was influenced the vote was what someone's face looked like and whether they looked friendly. Hmm. And so I was just like, oh, well, that's just all kinds of, you know, unconscious bias happening there, right? I mean, yeah. okay, if you're just looking at like a picture of somebody and that's, and you decide within 24 hours, like, you're just going to pick someone off a menu, <laughs> a, like a visual menu, like, wow, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a fascinating study, um, dare I say horrifying. Uh, how, how does that sit with you, having that kind of result? Um, it makes me disappointed in our citizenry. 
that people wouldn't find it important enough to just find out even just a little bit about you know their representatives because it's representative democracy it's not direct democracy it's representative democracy and you know you're picking representatives and it seems like it'd be helpful to know if you you know other than what someone looks like to you it would be helpful to know something about them yeah. even a little right i mean like i do a lot of homework so you know i'm a weirdo but i'm an anomaly um and i understand that and, but like you know to just know a little bit that that goes beyond just a photograph or just you know maybe a commercial that happened to be in the background somewhere you know while you're waiting in line or whatever i don't know it just it makes me wish that people took it more seriously. I mean, and maybe this goes back to my childhood where, you know, I went to town hall and it felt serious, mm -hmm. you know? And so maybe that instilled in me this idea that this was a serious endeavor and should be approached that way. Our last story comes from the millennial generation from Toby Shannon. Toby is currently a graduate student of sustainable business and policy and works as the operations manager for Mockingbird Analytics. She's also a host of the amazing podcast, Memotionally Unavailable. I highly recommend you check it out as soon as you're done listening here. Her story comes to us from Los Angeles. Hello, my name is Toby Shannon. I am part of the millennial generation and I think I would describe myself as being uh, a budding community organizer slash motivator. Hey, Toby. I would love to start with hearing about your first experiences that you can remember with civic engagement. Yeah, um, I think two things come up in particular. The first is that, so my parents have always been civically engaged. Um, we are part of something called a giving circle within my community back home in North Carolina, which means um, we participate with other donors of color to essentially gather our money together and be able to donate it to individuals or community organizations within our community. So that's always been a large part of my life. Um, and I'm on the board of our Giving Circle Network, which is a collection of about 20 giving circles across the U.S. who are led by donors of color. So, yeah, my parents have always been involved and physically engaged. And so within that, I think my earliest experience with it was marching for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. That's always something that I think a lot of cities um, have put together for a long time. And I think I don't even know how old I was when my parents started bringing me to the marches, but that's kind of like the earliest, you know, part of what I can remember. And then also, um, I think that I grew up in a community where a lot of schools were doing this. So I don't know if it's different or some people have never experienced this, but um, excuse me, around election time, we would always have mock elections at my school. So we would have like, you know, the ballots and people would um, 
you know, basically vote the way that their parents were voting. So you could see like <laughs> whose parents were Republican, whose parents were Democratic, whose parents didn't really talk to them about voting. And so they didn't really know what was going on. But that was always a really interesting thing. Um, and thinking about it now, it's like very, it's very telling about how we talk to kids about voting and, you know, um, the people who, it's funny, like, I think one year, I might be getting this wrong, but I think one year, I believe it was like the 2004 election. Yeah, so whichever election that was, or whoever was running for president, I remember being in fourth grade, and we had our mock elections, and I think that it was on the same day as, like, pizza day, and so just, to like, set the scene, we were, like, <laughs> all excited and hyped up on pizza, and then we were voting, um, and for me, I think it sticks out because I was one of the only Black children in my class, and so having to uh, I guess, like, vote the way that your parents voted, you could obviously tell that there was, like, a distinct difference in the community that I uh, went to school in, and I was one of the only people who voted Democratic or whatever, so I think that was, like, very telling in terms of, like, when you think about the two-party system and think about what's happening in our country now, like, modern day, and how many years I've been involved, like, as a registered voter and what that really means and how I've I guess my culmination of having to think about like which party I belong to quote-unquote and which party I really believe in um that's definitely like an earlier memory of mine to like kind of I guess shape the way that you really think about what it means to vote in America in particular so to say that was also my earliest uh, memory was a mock election. Yeah. It sounds like I'm I'm just slightly older than you when I was in fifth grade, and I it was like my first sense of injustice in the world because my elementary school had voted for Al Gore, that's who won over the entire elementary. And then I remember like uh, obviously there was the recount in Florida, and you know Bush lost the yeah. vote. And everybody was like, that's not okay, <laughs> you know, that you lost. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's not okay. Like, my elementary school voted for Al Gore. <laughs> um, and yeah. It's, uh, and I remember I, I asked my parents, like, who I should vote for. And it, and it was essentially, um, my parents actually were pretty big Bush fans, but my sister was an Al Gore fan. And I liked, okay. my sister was more uh, knowledgeable, so... <laughs> and that's that is kind of how you're taught is just like who's good who's bad and it's pretty simple yeah exactly <laughs> it's very much like I mean that's what elementary school age kids you know that's how they associate what's good and what's bad um completely and like it was yeah it was a very interesting <laughs> conversation and like I'm sure my parents had an interesting time explaining to me like what was happening because of course like North Carolina is a red state um, and even more so back then I think that becoming a little bit more purple but <laughs> yeah it was it was different. Yeah I am so fascinated about this uh, giving circle. Um, how, so it sounds like your your parents were pretty heavily involved in this and then you've joined um, 
when when was that transition for you when you started getting involved and what what was that experience like yeah so um to give a little bit more history about that we well they started their giving circle with like a group of friends um in the raleigh durham area when i was about i want to say eight or nine maybe ten and so I guess a few years later after they began that was when the network started so like the collection of giving circles got together in one singular place and like just had different conversations about best practices and things of that nature and we still have that conference as a matter of fact and so um, I would always go to those conferences with my parents so it's kind of just ingrained in me that that was something you know like they'll the people who are in our giving circle so kind of like my aunties and uncles like they always talk about how I would just be around and just be listening and be observant of what was happening and what they were really talking about. Um, and so I don't really know if there was much of a transition. It was more so like, oh, I like have a little bit of time now and I understand what it means to like take it upon myself to go and volunteer or be able to donate my money or be able to donate my time in a specific way. <clears throat> so what uh it sounds like this is this has been pretty pretty much a part of your your upbringing and your life being involved in this way um was just kind of the norm that was set within your family uh do you think about you know today what inspires you to continue this work or to you know to you know take on what your parents did and, and continue it yourself yeah um i think just learning from and being able to see them in the work that they've done like I said you know like I grew up around it was able to like go to the different conferences here here over time and I don't I don't know if I could like say it out loud all of the things that I heard when I was like nine or ten years old but definitely like being able to see over time how things have changed in terms of um, community giving and what it means to be civically engaged um, in my community in particular, it's more so the fact that like we're not going to be able to move forward if we don't have, if we don't um, do anything. I think that's like kind of a basic and inherent feeling, but I think it's really true that, you know, like you, you can't even really, to me, I can't really complain about the way that things are and not be involved in trying to change them. And I'm not sure if everybody feels that way. And I think that's okay. Like I think different people feel fill in different roles in different ways. But for me, like this is the way that I've been taught to be able to give back and also to ensure that we're moving forward. And there's still a lot more that we have to do to move forward. I'm seeing the same things that my parents went through when they were kids. You know, like people are still going through that in terms of like the discrimination and in terms of the ways that, you know, just white supremacy in general has infiltrated like a lot of aspects of our lives in America, especially. A lot of it is mirroring the same thing or it just looks like, you know, a the same present in a different packaging. <laughs> so for me, I'm like, I don't really, it doesn't benefit me to just kind of sit back and be like, well, that's just how things are. 
that's not the type of person that I am. Family clearly plays a big role in how we form our political opinions. As October rolls by and we enter into the family holiday season and what looks like is going to be a contentious last few months of campaigns, I encourage all of you to try something different at your next family get together. Try figuring out what the beginning is. Ask those questions about where people first formed their opinions. What was their first experience like? Maybe you'll find something you didn't expect. If you're interested in learning more or listening to future Alt-G podcasts, visit our website, altgpodcast.com and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Music in the creation of Alt-G comes from my phenomenal brother, Daniel Johnson, and a little help from Epidemic Sound. You can also find us on Instagram at altgpodcast. Thanks for listening.